Welcome to the Speakeasy Crime Cafe podcast, where we speak to some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet. The people that I bring to you have lived through or experienced something most of us never will. I'm your host, Michael Merson. Again, welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today at the Speakeasy Crime Cafe, I got a special guest I met out here in Las Vegas. I came out for the Guns, Gangs, and Drugs Conference once again, and I meet Lou Velosi, a retired ATF agent that spent... Lou, how many years were you there? Uh, I was on the job 26 years. 26 years. And I got to tell you, you know, running into Lou here, you if you ever see him, you will never forget the way the guy looks like. He looks like this linebacker that... You know, people just move out of the way for when he's walking down the hallway. He has a great presence when people are around him. People just seem to flock to him the entire time we've been here when he presented in front of the class. If you ever get a chance just to uh, speak to him or invite him out to uh, one of your conferences, if you have one for your agency, to listen to him uh, talk about his experience on the job with the ATF where he's worked undercover, storefronts, hitman for hire, you name it. And that's some of the things we're going to talk about today. Lou, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? I appreciate you having me, brother. Um, you know, I, I kind of was one of those guys who who didn't take life very seriously, didn't take college very seriously, and had no direction uh, when I graduated. And no idea what I wanted to do when I just kind of had a chance meeting um, with a guy I played football with, his brother. This is in college, or this was right after college. I was I was working at a bank, making eight bucks an hour and uh, okay. bouncing at a nightclub. And um, I met up with this guy in the Bronx. Uh, he, he, I played ball with him, and he was at his brother's apartment. He said, come on down, check it out. So this guy drives up in a Corvette, and he's got the long hair. He's Italian like me. Um, he's got a Beretta 92F tucked in his uh, waistband. And I was like, man, this is about the coolest motherfucker I've ever seen in my life, man. And uh, he sat down and had a beer with me. Never met him before. He was he was a DEA agent, and he was working undercover. No, He'd just yeah. gotten back from Panama, and we talked for about thirty minutes, and I was hooked, man. I, I found my direction. That one chance meeting, that one conversation, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, so at that point, I you know I started taking the test for every alphabet letter agency, ATF, FBI, DEA, you, you name, name it, it. and. Uh, you know, I, I was not the greatest student in the world, but I was still in test-taking mode because I was fresh out of college. And uh, so during that time, I started working for a private investigator out of Long Island and, uh, you know, doing shit like going to bars and seeing, you know, catching the bartenders, shoving money in their pockets and all that, skimming off the top, uh, videotaping people who were on workers' comp, you know, who were out there lifting weights and all that, Um Fraud, you know, fraud and so fraud, forth. Yeah, yeah so just, just getting a little bit of investigative experience uh, because I had none, you know, in most federal agencies, you got to have at least three years investigative experience. That's not patrol, that's investigative experience on top of your college degree. But because I was still in test-taking mode, I was able to score, I scored so high on the test, I got a call uh, from immigration out in Los Angeles. Uh, for a special agent job, 
Okay. So I bought a suit. My dad helped me buy a suit in the garment district. Never had a suit before? No. No, bought a suit in the garment district in New York, and uh, he helped me buy a ticket, flew out to L.A., and uh, tucked my long hair in my collar and went in for the interview. And, uh, you know, I think because I was so clueless, I wasn't really nervous. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I was so green. And uh, I got a call a week later for a job offer. So you were basically ICE before it was right. ICE. It was called INS back then. Okay. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I knew nothing about immigration. And, uh, you know, I went to the academy down in Georgia, and, and I found myself loving it. You know, the first half was basic criminal investigator school, right. constitutional law, all that. And I, I just, I loved it. You know, I'd never shot a gun, never held a gun in my life. And, uh, you know, then the second half, immigration law, very convoluted, very confusing, Probably next to tax law, it's probably the most difficult uh, thing to learn. Yeah. Uh, but I, again, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. And then the whole Spanish immersion after that. And then next thing I knew, I was on the streets of L.A., man. This was 91. And, you know, this was pre-riots. Uh, and every how, how old were you at that time? I was 22. Oh, man. It's yeah. got to be exciting. 22, man. And every... All the heavy hitters in L.A., you know, the gangs in L.A., they, they were kind of the first one to really have this gang problem. Um, and, and what was happening at that time was all the domestic gangs, you know, the Bloods, the Crips and all them, man, they, they weren't ready. They weren't even familiar with the type of violence that these Central American gangs were bringing to Los Angeles. Right. Really? The MS-13. Yeah. This is back in 91. No one knew who the MS-13 was at that time outside okay. of Los Angeles. 18th Street Gang, uh, you know, Mexican Mafia, Florencia Trece, MS-13. They were chopping people's heads off. They were chopping people's private parts off and shoving them in their mouths. I mean, the, the level of violence they brought to the drug trade, you know, in Los Angeles was, was just out of control. So I found myself in the mix. Here I was, uh, you know, learning about their culture, learning about all this, and on the streets, in the you know, in the anti-smuggling unit, the gang unit, and uh, I was lucky enough to get into the Rampart Task Force, which was LAPD, ATF, and INS. Now, Rampart, we've heard, you know, yeah, had some problems. Yeah, yeah, and this was this was during that time. But let me tell you, the greatest cops I've ever worked with. Okay, and uh, they taught me how to be a cop. And what, what happened, you know, INS agents were always, you know, we were not like top tier when it came to the federal agencies, but we came in very handy, right? Because, you know, if you were dealing with cartels and dealing with these gangs, it always came in handy to use immigration as leverage against these guys. Because yeah. they didn't give them about, they, they didn't care about much, but they cared about staying in this country and their families staying in this country. Right. So it was good leverage. So we came in handy. So we were always tagging along and included. And when I started working with the ATF guys, I, you know, these guys had the long hair. They looked like gangbangers and bikers and shit. And I was like, man, this is what I want to do. Because I wanted to work undercover as a big Italian-American uh, working with immigration. There wasn't any opportunity for me to work undercover. So I knew I had to work my way eventually to ATF. And in the meantime, I was learning how to be a cop. I mean, just street corner jump outs, just basic street work we were doing. And it, it, it was, I loved it. You know, during the riots, you know, we worked during the riots. We were out there banging heads. Um, so the first first part of your career was just an OJT, on-the-job training out there and 
getting a feel of doing it before you moved into the ATF. And there was no better place to be a cop than Los Angeles in the early 90s. I mean, yeah. that's where the action was. It was phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I loved it. But, you know, as an East Coast guy, I knew I wanted to get back to the East Coast. Uh, you know, my dad was, was sick. He was getting old. And uh, ATF was a tough agency to bust into, especially during the 90s. You know, it's a small agency, and they don't hire very often. You know, okay. those openings were very rare. Uh, I think during that time, they actually hadn't hired for like five or six years, which hurts an agency when yeah. you're not bringing anyone in. So just to get back to the East Coast, I did a short stint with the U.S. Marshals. Uh, they promised me I could be on their fugitive apprehension squad. So I went there and I was in New York for a little while. Then they sent me to Puerto Rico. And during that time, I was on the Puerto Rican Fugitive Task Force with the FBI and... Uh, Puerto Rican police and the U.S. Marshals. And the opening came up. ATF was hiring 24 people, only if you were already an agent on 1811 with another agency. Okay. And, you know, that way you didn't have to go through the first half of the academy again. Because now I've already been through the academy twice as a basic student, you know, with, with immigration with the Marshals. So I put in and I got hired. Uh, I went to the World Trade Center for my interview. And, uh, you know, now I went back to the academy for a third time as a basic student. I'm probably one of the only people in this country who has been a basic student for over a year uh, at the Federal <laughs> Law Enforcement Training Center. And, uh, you know, so the, and the ATF Academy was still wild back then. I mean, you know, like the class coordinators were there to party. And I mean, you know, we trained hard and we partied even harder. Like I lost a few years of my life at that academy. You, you can't get them back. You don't remember them, or man. Let me tell you, with and with some of the greatest people, some of the, I mean, everyone, the instructors, the students. You know, my my brothers and sisters who are in my class, just phenomenal. Um, and because uh, you know, when the first time I went through with immigration, you know, we had to cut our hair and shave, and we had these awful brown uh, uniforms. And, you know, the ATF guys come in with their blue khakis and ATF T-shirts looking like the Hells Angels, you know, into the into the lunchroom. And we're all like, man, you know, green with envy, basically. So, you know, now I was one of those guys. You got to be a recruit again. You got to make it look like it. And you yeah. got to look like a recruit. And that's what they did. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's, it was definitely ATF. They were the cowboys, you know, of federal law enforcement. They were the real cops. You know, they weren't hiring lawyers and accountants like the FBI. They right. were hiring hardened street cops. Okay. And uh, so I found a home, you know. So ATF gives you three cities to put in for. They say, name your top three cities, we'll get you in one. So I wanted to be in the mix, in the action. So I really didn't want to go back to the West Coast, but I, I picked New York, Miami, and L.A. as my third. And I figured now as a Spanish speaker, those are three cities most agents are trying to get the hell out of, Right. Right. You know, I'm guaranteed. And uh, they put me in Savannah, Georgia. You know, no kidding. The wisdom of the government. Yeah. So you didn't get any of the three that you asked for? Savannah, Georgia, which, you know, I barely ever heard of. But, you know, sometimes things work out. I got there and my partner was a lunatic undercover guy. Uh, his name is Randy Beach. We called him Randall Too Hot to Handle. Uh, he was known by as Julio Delgado. That was his undercover name. 
And I did an undercover transaction. I bought a stolen gun from a convicted felon my first day on the job. First day in a bathroom. That's your first arrest. First, or not your first arrest, your first deal. Before I even went to the academy. Yep. Yep. Huh. And uh, it was this huge dude, and uh, he wanted to do the deal in the bathroom of a crystal. You know, a fast food crystal. It's like a Hardee's and so forth. Right, right. Like okay. kind of like the, another version of White Castle for me. And then, uh, so we meet, and this big dude, he was like 6'5", and uh, he's like, let's go to the bathroom. So we go in the bathroom. I mean, there's people in there eating burgers. And uh, we go in the bathroom, and he points to the shitter, and he's like, let's go in there. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm a big dude. He's a big dude. It's, it's a, a stall with a toilet. Yeah, they're not real big. Yeah, so he, you know, he opens it up. I go in there, and uh, he comes in, and, you know, we're chest to chest, basically. He, he puts the latch on, and I'm thinking, man, if, if this goes south, my my options are, are pretty limited right now. You start right? running through your head what you can do. Absolutely, to- absolutely. Uh, I'm like, listen, I'm going to dunk this fucker's head in the toilet if he, if he breaks <laughs> bad on me right now. But, uh, you know, the deal went great. You know, I bought the gun, and, and I was hooked, man. I was so f- proud of myself. I came out of there. You know, with that stolen gun, and uh, that you know that was the beginning for me, and I, that was my my crack high, and I, I couldn't come down, I couldn't stop, and eighteen years, you know, from that point, I never stopped, couldn't stop. Incredible. Yeah. So that was your first deal. And then you're in Savannah. And then you go where? So I'm in Savannah kind of, you know, cutting my teeth, um, doing very street level undercover, uh, which I knew that I wanted to do these long term infiltrations and kind of get on the national scene. But honestly, the street stuff is what's important. The street stuff is what makes an impact, you know, to the communities you're working in. You know, those nickel and dime gun buys and dope buys in parking lots and alleyways, car washes. Um, you know, in ATF, they rate your, the level, you know, there's, there's four categories, one, two, three, and four. And, you know, for example, a long-term mafia infiltration would be a four, you know, and what I was doing was a one, right? A, a informant would introduce me to some convicted felon gangbanger and I would buy a, a machine gun, you know, on the street and, you know, that would be it. That was basically the case. So how take take us through one of those. I mean, you, you got a guy that wants to sell a machine gun. Yep. How does that even come to you? I mean, you're working, you're on the street, you're dealing with informants and so forth. And one of them just comes up, hey, I got to work off some charges. And because they've been arrested. And he's like, I know a guy that's got a gun yep. that wants to sell it. In undercover work, you're only as good as your informant. I don't care if you're the greatest undercover agent in the world. If you don't know how to work informants and treat informants, and cultivate informants, that you, all your skill is for nothing because you're not going to be in the mix. And, and you know, I know, like, law, in law enforcement, everyone always says, don't never trust an informant. But my, you know, my first partner, Randy Beach, taught me that that's not the case. You know, this, this guy's going to bring me in to whatever it is, a biker club, a... Uh, you know, a mafia or, or, you know, some, some violent gang. 
And, you know, my life kind of depends on him, right? He's vouching for me. Absolutely. So I'm not going to trust that guy. You see, I took a different approach. When I went over to Randy's house once early on, his informant, one of his informants was in his house doing Bible study with him and his family. And I was like, man, I don't think, I don't think that's in the, in the rule books. There's no, right? not a handbook or anything, right? Right. But that's how he treated his informants. And, I mean, he, you know, his success spoke for itself. So he kind of taught me that. You know, and I'm, I'm not saying have personal relationships. I'm not saying that with your informants. But all I'm saying is you, you treat them with respect, honor, and dignity. And you will get so much more out of them. Now, unless they give you a reason not to, which some informants will, but you will get so much more out of them. And I always looked at it this way. My life is in their hands here, especially during the introduction. You know, and I'm not going to do that tough guy cop routine with them and have them kind of resent me. I, I want them to love me, right? I, I want them to consider me a part of their team. Because you want them to come back. Absolutely. With because information. No matter how, again, I'll say it again, no matter how great you are as an undercover agent, if you don't have great informants out there who, who are going to give you the opportunity to infiltrate, you got nothing. You know, and, and my career was made, I, there's not one thing I did on my own. Well, there's one case, one case out of all my cases, you know, where it wasn't facilitated at least by a confidential informant. Amazing. Yeah. And would these guys do this for money or are they working off charges or? Oh, you know, situational. Uh, each, each one was different. Yeah, there were professional informants who just, they did it for money. There was actually informants who did it because they just liked doing it. Uh, that was their way to serve, kind of. Um, those ones you had to kind of be careful of. And, you know, they were kind of almost wannabe, wannabe cops. Um, you know, there was informants who did it to stay in the country foreign nationals right. for immigration status. And of course, there was informants who were doing it to either reduce their sentence or to stay out of prison altogether. You know, whatever their motivation was, uh, my approach was always, I'm going to help them as much as I can if they're producing. So if they're doing it for money, I will get them every dime I can get them from the government. I will go to bat over and over to get them more money. You know, if they're doing it to stay out of prison, I'm going to do everything I can to keep them out of prison. So do you have an incident when, you know, Lou, that you that sticks out the most that you bought a, a certain gun from a certain individual that made an impact? Yeah, you know, and I'm going to go back to the machine gun thing. Um, okay. Machine guns, you know, everybody, not in, they were not, all that common, right? You know, right. not everybody out there. If you look at crime statistics, right, murders, uh, shootings, very small percentage of these in America are happening with machine guns, right? But they're out there, and that they was, a, you know, that you know, those are considered NFA weapons, the National Firearms Act, and that, that was a part of our job to get those off the street. Um, you know, organized crime—they they are used by organized crime. So, you know, those were—that was a feather in your cap. To get, you know, if you could get those off the street, you know, all those kind of NFA weapons, you know, sawed off shotguns, sawed off rifles, um, machine guns, you know, wh whatever they were, those the guns that were in and of themselves illegal. Uh, you know, that was a big part of our job 
getting those off the street. So there was a time when these Bolivian gun smugglers that we were working on, they were Bolivian gun traffickers who were, they were into everything, stolen cars, dope guns, but, but guns was, that was a big, it was part. a big deal for them. Yeah. Big deal. And, uh, they, we, we were doing this deal with cars. Uh, they were shipping Lexuses down to South America, stolen Lexuses. And, they were wanting us to title these Lexuses uh, under our fake business. It made it easier, these were stolen vehicles, for them to ship them if they were properly titled, to get them on a container ship. All right. Okay? So we had a couple of uh, brand new stolen Lexus SUVs that they had asked us to title for them. So we titled them. We bought them from them and titled them. And then what they wanted was for us to sell them back. So I knew these guys were shipping machine guns. We had information about that. They had never brought it up. So I offered, I said, listen, why don't we trade you these vehicles once we get them titled for 30 of these machine guns? These were high dollar machine guns. We're talking like fully auto or? Fully auto. We're talking uh, these guns were probably worth street value 10, 10 grand each. 10 grand. So, AKs or? Uh, there were AR-15, AR variants that were okay. fully automatic. All right. So they, the guns were in Miami, and uh, we had uh, some of my partners in Miami were doing a storefront at the time. Okay, a storefront. Right, a fake business set up by law enforcement, owned and operated by law enforcement. Okay. In order to draw in um, criminals for you know whatever the purpose, if you've set it up to get guns off the street, to get drugs off the street, to get stolen merchandise off the street, um, you know that's it's an investigative tool. It's a type of operation we do, and they worked great. So I had my partners in Miami who had a storefront up and running. We were up in Georgia. And I knew that the Bolivians didn't want, they weren't crazy about transporting the guns up I-95 for us, right? But I said, listen, that's, that's part of the deal. Um, I said, but here's what I'll do. Bring one of the guns to my partners. I'll give you the name. I'll give you the, their phone number. Bring one in. Let him check it out. And he'll buy it from you if it's what I think it is, okay? Because a lot of times you buy machine guns and you find out they're just semi-automatic. So they said, okay. And this guy happened to be, uh, he was an El Salvadorian um, guy. He was an ATF agent. So they brought the one gun to him. And he checked it out. And he, you know, these guys, that's the great thing about ATF is you could do this. You could interchange because... The guys in our undercover program were so good, I was comfortable sending my bad guys to any of them. Okay. So they brought a gun to him. He checked it out. He knocked it out of the park. He bought it. He called me and said, yeah. It's a real deal. Yeah, these are legitimate. So I got back with the Bolivian. I said, listen, I got a thumbs up. I said, so get those guns up here, no matter how you got to do it. Get them up here, and we'll trade out for the Lexuses. So that was... 30 machine guns. Well, it was 29 because he had taken that one. He had bought that, taken it in custody. 
So they delivered us 29 machine guns in exchange for um, three brand new Lexus SUVs that we had titled for them. And uh, we were working with the National Insurance Crime Bureau and with CBP. And we had put some chips in. Obviously, we're not going to let these stolen vehicles. So we, we put tracker chips in them. Keep track of them. Find out where they're going. Yep. So uh, the machine guns actually had um, packaging still stuck to them, like in the barrels and stuck to some. Because they had literally taken them out of a shipment that they were sending down to South America and sold them to us. So when, when you ask about importance, I was like, wow. How many people would have died, right? How many people would have been killed with these machine guns down in South America if we hadn't intercepted these? Um, you know, and I, I thought about that a lot. I bought over a thousand guns in my career, a personally, thousand guns. a thousand crime guns in undercover transactions. And I used to think, you know, when you buy one gun off the street, off a bad guy, you know, how many guns, how many people... How many lives has this gun already taken? At the minimum, it's probably one. Probably. And how many lives would it have taken? You really can't quantify that. No. Right? So, you know, the way I look at it, like the biggest reward out of my career is, you know, these 1,000, it was over 1,000 guns. You know, how many lives were saved by those guns being in the ATF evidence vault and then being destroyed after the case was adjudicated? You know, and that, that's my biggest pride in my career, my biggest accomplishment. So anyway, just to finish that story, we took the machine guns um, and then we tracked the Lexuses and they sat in a shipping yard by the port uh, for a couple months. And that was very common because they wanted to make sure everything was cool. Uh, and then they actually were loaded onto a, uh, loaded into containers and loaded onto a, to a ship uh, that was bound for South America. And uh, CBP actually intercepted the ship took the Lexuses back and put Lexus matchbox cars inside of the container.